From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Joe Biden will accept the nomination tonight at the Democratic National Convention. We hear from Colorado's Democratic Senator Michael Bennett on his hopes for the election. Then, as four major wildfires burn in Colorado, one of the firefighters on the ground also happens to be the director of Colorado's Department of Natural Resources. You may think, hey, this fire doesn't really impact me. The water that we have in Colorado, in many cases, comes from the mountain communities. And a new Colorado board will evaluate name changes for a dozen of the state's mountain ranges, valleys, gulches, and streams. These place names are just spectacular opportunities to look at our loyalty to place, not as a reason to fight, but as a reason to say, oh, we didn't know this, and now we do. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The Democratic and Republican National Conventions are this week and next. They give each party an exclusive primetime chance to showcase their presidential nominees. At the same time, though, the two parties are locked in brutal battles over policy. I'm joined by Colorado's Democratic Senator Michael Bennett. Senator Bennett, welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the U.S. Postal Service and how it might affect the upcoming election. President Trump has criticized mail-in balloting, saying that it's subject to fraud. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy has ousted some top executives and ordered operating changes, including eliminating overtime, reducing postal hours, and removing postal boxes. Earlier this week, DeJoy backed off some and said that he will suspend the changes until after the election. Does that give any comfort with that the Postal Service will handle the election effectively? It doesn't give me any comfort. And I, having spent the last two days traveling uh, in the San Luis Valley in the western slope of Colorado, some of the most rural parts of our state, I can tell you that people are terrified about what President Trump is doing and what the Postal Service is doing, partly because of what the effect will be on voting, but also because of real concerns about the viability of communities to exist with a Postal Service compromise uh, the way the administration is suggesting. There's a deep, deep concern that the Postal Service is underfunded and being kneecapped by this administration. On the voting part, these are the tactics that we would expect to see in places like Turkey or Russia. We would never expect to see them in the United States. And every one of us that's got Uh, the chance to fight back needs to fight back. Their concerns clearly go beyond just an election. The U.S. House, with the Democratic majority, will come back from recess this weekend to consider legislation that would prohibit those changes at the Postal Service. Given the Republican majority in the Senate, is there a chance that legislation will be ultimately passed? I think there actually is a chance. It may sound shocking for me to say that, but I suspect that all of my colleagues have heard over this recess when they've been home exactly what I've heard this sense of deep, deep concern uh, or fear about what President Trump's doing to the post office. So I think that pressure will build, and I think there uh, actually is a real chance for us to pass something through the Senate. And when you talk about Democrats fighting back, what does By that way, mean? Can I, say one, can I say one other thing about sure. your initial question, which is it's really important to call the president out for lying here, because what he's saying about mail ballots is completely untrue. I mean, Colorado has mail-in ballots. We run our elections free of fraud, in fact, more free of fraud than other elections. And so he's completely invented this. He knows it's not true. He cast his own ballot in Florida by mail. 
He's simply doing this to try to hold on to power in an illegitimate way. Now, I do wonder, the presidential election is about two and a half months away. Do you think some of the damage that we've talked about might already have occurred? The turnout will drop because people mistrust the system or think voting is too much of a hassle. I I think that's a real concern, which is why President Obama's speech last night during the convention is so important. Our democracy is at stake. I, I believe that for almost a decade, even before Donald Trump was elected president. And now it's very clear that this is a moment when we have to show up. And there are people, I regret to say it, but it's true, that are trying to suppress the vote all over the country, the president being the leading uh, example of that. And our only response to that has to be to vote. Now, let's turn to the reckoning over racial inequality that this country has seen in the last few months, specifically demonstrations that have, in some cases, resulted in damage to public property. We've seen, for instance, heavy graffiti on Colorado's Capitol building and store windows boarded up in downtown Denver. The demonstrations themselves are prompted by much larger issues of racial justice. But some people argue that Democrats need to take a stronger stand against vandalism or risk allowing the president to continue to argue they're soft on crime. Your thoughts? I don't know anybody who's for vandalism, and I think vandalism doesn't help the cause. But I think much more important than that is what's been achieved as a result of people taking to the streets in Colorado and other places. And this is beginning to restore my faith in democracy. I mean, when you see Colorado's legislature pass the first modern police accountability legislation in the country, and not just Democrats supporting it, What I know is that two years ago, those votes wouldn't have been there. And because people took to the streets, because they protested over uh, injustice that has lasted far longer than any of us would have wanted, uh, they've actually been able to make change. And that's, to me, very inspiring. And another policy causing tension, Democrats and Republicans are deadlocked on the next round of stimulus, including reinstating extra unemployment benefits. I know that you want to restore the 600 weekly benefit from the first stimulus, but let's talk about another of your ideas. It's a business loan program. What? Who are you trying to help here? Uh, we're trying to help all the small businesses in America that have gotten crushed through no fault of their own. The hardest hit businesses, the ones that have seen the biggest revenue decline, and who need working capital for the next six months to get through uh, the next phase of this pandemic. It's called the Restart Act. Back to unemployment. Some business people argue that restoring that additional $600 a week has an unintended consequence. Some unemployed people make more than they did when they were working, so it's hard for businesses to rehire when jobs come back open. Is that $600 per week too much? Uh, I think this has become an issue. That's why I've proposed that what we do is extend the unemployment benefits, but that we feather down the amount over time so that uh, we don't create a disincentive for people to to work or for people to be able to hire folks. Now, um, Joe Biden will accept the nomination at the Democratic National Convention tonight. What's the single most persuasive message he could offer undecided voters? I think that that he's going to lead us out of the division of the Trump era, which has so damaged our country and the prospects of our ability to turn over something that we're going to be proud of to the next generation of Americans uh, and, and so diminished America's place in the world. I think that he has 
an incredible opportunity because of uh, who he's following. If if he is successful here, we've got no shortage of work to do from from the work that we need to do on our education system to make sure that we've got an economy that actually works for everybody, not just the people at the very top. We're leading the world uh, in addressing climate change, investing again in our infrastructure and putting together a tax code when we've got the biggest income inequality that we've had uh, since 1928. All of these issues are ones where we can get broad support. The party itself still has some divisions. Will there be an enthusiasm gap where supporters of Bernie Sanders don't turn out? I hope not, not unless we want to lose this election. Last time we saw an enthusiasm gap and Donald Trump was elected president. A lot of people thought he could never be elected president. I think people thought maybe their vote wouldn't matter. We now know neither of those things are true. Donald Trump can be elected. He was elected. He can be reelected. Is there an issue that you most disagree with Mr. Biden on? I actually don't have a strong disagreement with him on any issues. I I had hoped that we were going to have a new generation of leadership uh, in the White House. And I think his putting Kamala Harris on the ticket uh, helped solve for that. So I actually don't have significant policy issues with, with Joe Biden. And I will say, you mentioned the divisions among Democrats. I mean, a lot of times what people look at is different positions on health care. But the reality is, Uh, As far as I know, there's not a person that ran for president among Democrats, not a person in the Senate uh, who's a Democrat who doesn't believe, for example, that this country has to have universal health care. And I think we've got the chance now to provide that if if Joe Biden is successful and will overcome any small policy divisions we have uh, to, to provide that for the American people. Biden isn't calling for immediate transition to universal care, correct? Well, I think that he supports what I ran on, uh, which is a public option to supplement the work that we did uh, in the the Affordable Care Act. If we had a public option for everybody in America and we expanded CHIP so that every eligible kid were on it uh, and did the same thing with Medicaid, very quickly we could cover everybody in this country. Senator Bennett, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Michael Bennett is the Democratic senator from Colorado, speaking with us from Crested Butte. He's traveling the state this week, meeting with constituents. The Republican National Convention is next week. We're scheduled to speak with Republican Congressman and State Party Chair Ken Buck. When we come back, a wildland firefighter in Colorado who has an additional reason he wants to work the front lines. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Evergreen members make ongoing monthly donations in support of CPR. If you're an Evergreen member and have recently received a new credit or debit card, please update your information on file. Updating your credit or debit card will ensure that your investment in the programs you love is current. Easier still, switch to giving directly from a bank account. Your ongoing commitment to supporting in-depth news and music on CPR makes an impact. Call member services to update your card information at 800-722-4449. Four major wildfires continue to burn across the state. The Pine Gulch Fire on the western slope is now the second largest fire in Colorado history, and firefighters continue to battle the Grizzly Creek Fire along I-70 near Glenwood Springs. Firefighters like Dan Gibbs, who also happens to be the executive director of Colorado's Department of Natural Resources. Hi, Dan. Hey, Avery. Thanks for having me on. You reported for duty last Friday, fought the fire all weekend, 
Where were you stationed and what kind of work were you doing there? I was stationed on the northeast side of the fire for the Grizzly Creek Fire, and I was working with a structure protection crew that was focusing on protecting uh, homes in, in a neighborhood. So how and when is the decision made to call you into duty? Because I feel like it's not every day that you hear a member of the governor's cabinet is fighting literal fires. <laughs> yeah, I know it's pretty unique. Um I've actually been a certified wildland firefighter for for 13 years, and uh, I've been on both the the state call-up system, and I've also been a part of the federal call-up system. So when there are, you know, incidents around the country, I could potentially be called up. I've fought fires in Colorado and in California, and depending on how busy the fire season uh, there are times that I go out on multiple fires. Um, in my current job as head of the Department of Natural Resources, as you can imagine, it's definitely more challenging to get out on a fire. But I really feel like this is uh, really important for me to be on the ground, to really understand the complexities that, that wildfires bring to our natural resources, how it impacts our watersheds, how it, how it impacts our communities our wildlife, and just big picture overall natural resources. Your actual boots on the ground to see those changes and to see those effects. How did COVID-19 change the day-to-day firefighting operations? Yeah, it's it's very different. In the past, when I've been out on fires, you would have um, more or less a, a fire camp that would be set up where firefighters would set their tents up in, let's say, hypothetically, just like a large field. And the fire camp may be run like in a middle school or high school. You have uh, briefings every morning at 6 a.m. You have kind of like um, a large tent that would be for food. And, you know, everyone would be kind of gathered in one specific location. So, The big difference now is that you're working in a pod. So I was part of Division W, otherwise known as Division Whiskey. I was only with that particular crew. We were at Spike Camp, so I camped out on dispersed um, BLM land. The food was more or less dropped off by a pickup truck, and you have your individual container for for breakfast, uh, individual sack lunch. You put in 16-hour days, which is normal for any fire, but you are only with that particular small pod. They brought in kind of a a hand-washing station uh, that was very helpful, but, you know, no no showers or anything like that. Also, the morning briefings that would normally occur in person, uh, that was all done by radio communication. So, you, you know, turn your radio on at, at 6 a.m. Uh, to hear the morning briefing. You got the direction you needed uh, from that communication. And they really worked to minimize contact with, with people. I never saw people in Division A, which was kind of the southwest part of the, the, the fire. I never saw people from Division N or Division T or Division Q. And, and so even though there are over 600 people, you know, working on this fire, Uh, my pod probably had maybe 35 people. And did you feel like the social distancing, does it pose any obstacles to firefighting? 
you're with, with firefighting for wildland fires, you are working outdoors. And so keeping, uh, you know, a six foot distance from other firefighters is, is not hard to do, you know, even if you're digging fire line. The, the real challenging aspect, I'd say, would be logistics on, on how you get the resources that firefighters need when they're scattered, you know, around different parts of the fire. But, you know, I feel like in Colorado, we were working so well together. We were able to, you know, social distance. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the big difference, too, is a lot of in a lot of fires, you're with people, you know, from other fires that that you fought throughout the years. And there's great camaraderie in the Wildland Fire Service. But, you know, you you're, you're in a pod, so you don't see, you know, other people. You really don't know what other divisions are working on. You're only focused on the division that you're in. And I imagine that morale is important for firefighters as you're tackling these enormous projects and enormous fires. Is it difficult to keep morale up when you're more isolated? You know, firefighters have a job to do. Um, most firefighters are assigned for 14 days. They they get on the job. They They know what they need to get done. You know, I felt like the the firefighters I worked with, the morale was, was great. I I do know uh, talking from uh, folks from other states because when you have large scale fires, it's not just Coloradans that that fight fires. People come in from all over the country to help out. It's more of a stress on the system right now because I know that there are you know local fire departments and folks that just do not want to travel. The, the the resources have kind of created a strain um, because of that. However, uh, we had tremendous air resources. So we had numerous helicopters. There was a lot of, uh, you know, the the type one air tankers, like the V-LATs were constantly working to drop fire retardant and um, a lot of bucket drops with the helicopters that were able to get right in on the Eagle and Colorado rivers. And like you said, at this point, it's a national effort. Governor Polis has said that the Grizzly Creek fire is the f- top fire priority in the nation. What about this fire is making it spread so quickly and difficult to contain? The complexity is you have a fire that most folks agree that the ignition point was right in the middle of the canyon. And it's extremely dry. And so this particular fire has grown to both sides of I-70. So it's on the north side and south side when you go through the canyon. When I was uh, in the canyon a couple of days ago, there was still active fire in some parts on both sides of the canyon. So that really creates a challenging situation for firefighters to get in there. Um, it's very, very steep terrain. Fires also create uh, instability in the soils and the slopes. So you have uh, trees that have come down. You have rocks um, that are continuing to come down that really create um, a, a really uh, unsafe environment. So as a result, they're, they're definitely using a lot of helicopters to get in there. And you're down in the canyon. There's fire on both sides of you. We're having record-breaking heat. Is it just sweltering inside of your firefighting uniform? Yeah, it's quite hot. You know, we're all wearing uh, Nomax, which is, you know, fire-resistant wear. And the temperatures have been in the upper 90s. And then you have low relative humidity uh, in the single digits. And then you add on top of that 
some wind in the canyons really create unpredictable uh, wind patterns. So those combinations create an environment that is definitely very challenging for for firefighters. Um, but out west, we're, we're definitely used to you know working in all different types of weather and elements. And um, I don't think you ever hear a wildland firefighter complain about the weather. Uh, we're just hoping for rain. And then asking you to put on your hat as the director of Department of Natural Resources a little bit, what concerns do you have about how this fire and the other three major fires burning will impact the state? Well, you know, immediately when when there are wildland fires, it really impacts the community that's closest to where that fire is. So there are many folks that already have or are on uh, pre-evacuation orders. So you know, being displaced um, from your house is is scary and very unsettling to say the least. Firefighters are working extremely hard to protect those homes, you know, for all these fires. I think it's really important for folks to understand that even if they don't have a fire, you know, in their home community, let's say you live in Denver, you may think, hey, this fire doesn't really impact me. The water that we have in Colorado, in many cases, comes from the mountain communities. You know, when you have large-scale fires, what that does for water quality and quantity is really immense. Um, you, if you have fires, for example, in Summit County, that can have a major impact on the water delivery system that Denver Water provides for folks that live in Denver. The, the real impacts that wildfires have on on water quality and quantity is is definitely something that I think about often in our team. You know, we we work with communities, you know, after fires to try to mitigate sediment loads and and really trying to deal with the aftermath of potential flooding that occurred, erosion in the winter time, potential additional avalanches. There's an important nexus with with fires and everything that we do for the Department of Natural Resources. So there are a lot of effects to keep eyes on for months to come. And you're calling from Breckenridge right now. Are you headed back to the fire line this week? You know, um, I'm going to take a look at, we have, um, you know, four pretty pretty major fires going on right now. The Grizzly Creek, Creek Fire, the Pine Gulch Fire, Cameron Peak Fire, and the Williams Fork Fire. Williams Fork is the one that's uh, closest to, to where I live. It's about 15 miles southwest of uh, Frazier. Most of these, if not all, are on federal land. So I'll reach out to some of our federal partners, U.S. Forest Service and BLM, to see where I'm needed, if I'm needed. I'm not planning on go, going back out this weekend, but I'm definitely willing and able to get back out there and, and help. Dan, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Dan Gibbs is the executive director of Colorado's Department of Natural Resources and a reserve wildland firefighter who spent last weekend on the front lines at the Grizzly Creek Fire. Statues are coming down and mountains are being renamed in response to protests that have rocked the country this summer. Here in Colorado, Governor Polis recently formed a board that will evaluate name changes for a dozen of the state's mountain ranges, valleys, gulches, and streams. Patty Limerick is one of the 12 members of that board. She's a history professor at the Center of the American West at the University of Colorado. Hi, Patty. Howdy. Thanks for having me. 
Ernest House Jr. also joins us. He's the former head of the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs, now a senior policy director with the Keystone Policy Center. Welcome, Ernest. Hello, Avery. Ernest, as a member of the Ute Mountain Ute tribe, you've worked with three governors to elevate the voice of Native Americans at state level. How are these discussions about what places should be called different now than they have been in the past? Well, I think that there's an opportunity here that a lot of indigenous communities have been waiting for, to have an elevated voice, have a seat at the table. I think that Colorado is a state that we've seen not just forward-thinking policies, but a stronger connection with tribes who either once called Colorado home, the Utes, like I'm a member of the Mountain Ute tribe, to strengthen that government-to-government relationship, policies to support that effort, and then also to learn more about our past. I think this is a great opportunity to just yet increase that visibility and, uh, and to hear from our Indigenous voices. And Patty, the board hasn't had its first meeting yet, but tell me what you hope to accomplish. I am really full of, I guess I'm so glad that I'm hearing Ernest use the word opportunity, because I'm certainly seeing that in the picture. It's it's a peculiar time in our nation, and it would be possible to feel discouraged and and sort of stalemated. But I think the creation of this of this group, this advisory committee, is really a hopeful chance because people in Colorado care so much about the place, and sometimes newcomers are oblivious to the people who have been here the longest. And so this is just a spectacular opportunity to have a much better relationship between Indian people and all this this concatenation of newcomers who have arrived in the last two or three hundred years, so 200 years. So that's what I think is just so great. These place names are each of them just spectacular opportunities to say, let's get acquainted. Let's look at our loyalty to place, which many, uh, I would say the great majority of Coloradans share, and let's use that loyalty to place not as a reason to fight, but as a reason to say, oh, we didn't know this, and now we do. And in the end, this board will make a report to the state and the U.S. Geological Survey. Is that right? That's right. That's right. That's the chain of communication. Now, Ernest, the people who originally lived in Colorado include Apache, Arapaho, Cheyenne, Pueblo, Shoshone, and Ute nations. The Ute Mountain Ute and Southern Ute tribes have reservations in the state. How would you like to see the board involve Indigenous communities in the renaming process? Well, that's a great question, and I think it's going to be one of the challenges and uh, important opportunities for this board to consider. Um, As you mentioned, uh, we have 48 historic tribes of Colorado. Uh, A lot of those tribes really haven't been established relationships with the state up until as early as 2007. And so at the time, Colorado was the first state in the nation to create a policy to address a very sensitive, um, controversial topic around Native American human remains found on state and, and private lands in Colorado. And so that's where the stem of that relationship started. A lot of those tribes, 46 of those 48, were forcibly removed out of the state of Colorado to other surrounding states like Oklahoma, New Mexico, Montana, the Dakotas. And so over those last several years, there's been an effort to build that relationship. And through those efforts, we have found out histories. Tribes have been able to tell the state and state agencies different aspects of their own history and culture and identity and language as it relates to the mountains and valleys and things that we see when people drive up I-70 or along the I-25 corridor. I often say that long before there was an I-25 corridor or concrete laid down, there were just, there was already a historic corridor there from different tribes, you know, just with Utes alone, our own Nuchu people, have been in what we know as Colorado for the last 10 to 12,000 years. So to Patty's comment earlier, 200 years or 150 years is a blink of an eye, in my opinion. Yeah. 
Yeah. And how would you like to see this board involve and interface with tribes? And I think that that's part of the, the way that the outreach could do. You know, with 48 tribes, that's a lot of tribes, especially for tribes outside the state. But we've seen a lot of communities along the Front Range and throughout the state of Colorado that have engaged in consultation to invite tribal communities back to their communities that have always called home. And I think it's through that effort and through that outreach, uh, I'm glad to see the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs has a role and a place on this, on this board and commission. I'd like to see the possibilities of expanding that to include indigenous voices because it's through that type of partnership that that information will come out. Now, that's a heavy lift. and But we have to also understand that it's we have to build that trust back with indigenous mm-hmm. communities. We have to um, really acknowledge that history to then set forth a process for any type of reconciliation efforts. This is just one of those steps along that path. So this board, it will consider changing the names of about a dozen places in Colorado, among them Mount Evans. Patty, remind us why that name is on the list. All right. John Evans was the territorial governor of Colorado, and he was not present at the Sand Creek Massacre in 1864. And his actions as territorial governor really set the stage for maximizing conflict uh, and for setting the conditions that led to the November 29, 1864 Sand Creek Massacre. So, John Evans was the territorial governor. He played a key part in the escalation of the tensions, but it is important to say that he was not physically present. He was not a participant at the Sand Creek Massacre. He wasn't a participant, but in some ways he was responsible for instigating what happened there. He was. And this isn't the first time people have talked about changing mountain peak names. In fact, Ernest, can you tell us the story behind Chapita Mountain in Salida? Yeah, it was a great opportunity. A few years, a handful of years ago, I was invited to the community of Salida. They were celebrating at the time Indigenous Peoples Day. And a way to do that within the community-led efforts was to change a local 13er. They went through the process through the United States Geological Service to change that name uh, formally to Mount Chapita, which Chapita was Uray, Chief Uray, which is a Ute chief, uh, his wife. And so at that day on Indigenous Day uh, celebration, they not only talked about the process to officially rename that 13er, that local mountain peak that they have there, and then also invite members of the Northern Ute tribe, which are descendants of Chief Uray uh, in Utah, invite them back to the state of Colorado to include them in not just the celebration, but the acknowledgement and the education about who Chapita was and who we as you and Nuchu people are. And so I think that's important connection in a contemporary sense on how to make these uh, types of steps moving forward. And Ernest, could you reflect more on what you were saying earlier about these name changes just being a step in the road to reconciliation with Indigenous peoples who are in Colorado and who historically have been in Colorado? Well, I think that's been part of the ongoing uh, partnership and collaboration we're trying to see. You know, Gore Mountain Range is one of those examples up in Summit County, where county officials reached out to the tribes, the Ute tribes, to invite them to, to learn more about the Gore Mountain Range and to look at changing those. I've had Um, And it has just, with only been the last three or four years, uh, additional authors reaching out to me on revising a new edition of a 14er map, and they want to include indigenous place names. And so when we talk about that, the relationship with these tribes, that's where that, why that's important. Because, you know, tribes also want to know why you're using their information. They're just not going to willingly give that over. There's important aspects there, and, and there's a trust, again, a trust that needs to be built there. But also at the same time, 
they also understand the education uh, to a much broader community about what that Ute name means, what that Arapaho name means, or Cheyenne, and so on and so forth. And so that's why I think it's important that this conversation happen. But I've only seen, really seen the increase of these questions and requests, I think because of the acknowledgement. And that's where it starts, the acknowledgement of a wrong, and then how you're supposed to reconcile that moving forward if reconciliation ever takes place. And I think that we saw that example in Colorado numerous times. But for me, one of the most impactful moments was in 2014, when former Governor Governor John Hickenlooper issued apology on behalf of the state of Colorado's role in the Sand Creek Massacre. I think then you have to start building on that relationship from that point forward. Now, some people want to see current names remain We hear from folks who think that changing the names of places like Mount Evans would be like trying to change history. How do you answer that, Ernest? Well, I think that uh, we hear that a lot. Um, We know that a lot of people don't don't like change. And yet what I often look at is how I look at that question a little bit differently. And how I look at that differently is, are we talking about real history? And if we're talking about real history, the clock of history did not start at, in 1876 in Colorado statehood, and it didn't start in 1776. And like I mentioned, with youths being here for just the last 12,000 years, there's a lot of history there that has yet to be told, that is yet to be shared, and those partnerships need to be built. I feel like if we're talking about an opportunity to actually learn real history, true history, that information and partnerships need to be developed to be to be uh, expressed and also to be included in K through 12 in our education system so that students learn from how to be better the wrongs of Sand Creek Massacre and, and how, you know, Silas Soul and others were able to voice that uh, and, and go against that and be um, seen as allies to tribes. And we should acknowledge that places, mountains, valleys, rivers, these had names before the U.S. Geological Survey cataloged them. Uh, Is there anything that you'd like to share about Ute names for familiar places or the ways that these places were named? Well, I think that it's interesting to to also look at that because today, when you just look at American Indians, there's you know 574 federally recognized tribes throughout the United States, and here in Colorado, that's about less than two percent of the state's population identifies as American Indian. We have two tribes: the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe and Southern Ute Indian Tribe in southwestern Colorado, uh, but. The majority of the American Indian population lives in the Denver metro area, identified as urban Indian um, community, which is one of the fastest growing populations, not just in urban areas, but also in Colorado and Denver. That makes up over 200 different tribes represented of that 574. So I, I say all that because all these tribes had these different names for youth specifically. You know, when we look at these different ranges, going back hundreds of years, we had several bands that were spread out around Colorado that utilized, we still have hunting blinds standing in Rocky Mountain National Park, or our last recorded bear dance was in the early 1900s in Garden of the Gods. We've utilized what we know as Colorado at all of the corners, all of the four corners of the state. And I feel like that information, you know, it's a part of us and the Ute names that we use to acknowledge that um, are unique to those territories, to those landscapes. And they're embedded in our history. They're embedded in our oral traditions. And so I think that that information, again, it's not just willingly shared. That type of information needs to be, that trust and and partnership needs to be there. But I can promise you this, if this effort continues to go in the right way, 
Colorado can set a precedent. We can set a benchmark of how to engage indigenous communities, how to work with and raise the raise the voices and elevate those voices so they're apart. And and it's them speaking. It's not Colorado speaking on behalf of a population. Right. Patty, as a historian, can you weigh in on the tension between renaming places and erasing history? I am also, like Ernest, <clears throat> very familiar with that particular concern. Uh, I think of all the things to worry about, erasing history is that you can't erase the legacy of the actions of the past. We live with that. That shapes our daily lives. So the notion of erasing history seems like, I don't know what, erasing the first 15 years of your life as a child or something. I mean, you, you don't erase that. It's there. It stays there. Now, how do you remember it properly? There's many different answers to that. My own feeling more and more is that memorials, statues, plaques, naming, that might be the most life-draining way of doing that. If you have a person who was very much alive when he was on the planet and you make him into a bronze statue and he's just frozen, he's just, that's it, it's over there, uh, that's, not a, that's nothing that enlivens history or makes it seem, seem with us as indeed it is. So I would say that actually we might want to really rethink what it is to remember a living uh, heritage. And I believe that the great pattern of names is that a lot of people don't pay attention to them. You can be driving, looking at a map, going, okay, we need to go through this pass. Okay, that's a, But there's very little recognition of the figure at that point. If you, if you say, well, we're, we're driving up to Greeley, even a, a town name, well, who was Horace Greeley? Well, I can answer that question, but most people are just going to go to Greeley. So the notion that a name carries a spectacular power to preserve heritage and memory of a person, no, <laughs> that's just not, that doesn't happen. Uh, people, some people are fascinated by that. A few people actually pay a great deal of attention, but every name is a, is a, just a challenge to think, is that in fact the best way to convey the history? It certainly can't be the only way. And in fact, the legacy that we deal with, that is much more the living history, and that is with us, and there is no erasing that, there is no canceling that, that has to be dealt with. And to go to some of the things that, that Ernest has been saying, it's not a one-stop completed act. It's not that you say, okay, now we're paying attention to that rough moment in history, okay, done that, moving on. It, it's something that we live with, and we can live productively with it, and we can have it as a, a way of knowing each other uh, that's what counts. And as to whether a particular statue keeps a name or a particular geographical location or building keeps a name, that's probably not really where the action is. And Patty, why do you want to see these place names revisited? I would like to have a much better sense of what they all are. There's, there's a lot of places, and the naming process in history over the last 150 years has been quite an odd one that people's uh, mothers get commemorations or, or people's bosses get commemorations. I mean, it's, it's very interesting and arbitrary to see how place names get uh, located on the land. So uh, a better sense of just what is it we have in this inventory, what do we have to deal with would be, would be great. And of course, I, I just skipped around and talked about uh, towns and cities and statues, and we're just doing the geographical place names for actual geographical features. Uh, so, But just to know more about what's there, and it's such a remarkable state, and it varies so much that different, the San Luis Valley is such a different place from the Eastern Plains, and so just to have uh, 
a kind of reconnoitering just to say what have we before us to think about and deal with because each time each controversy is a moment of capturing attention to the past and that's good because the worst thing i'll just tell you as an historian history professor sometimes you go into the world people say what do you do you say oh i'm an historian they say oh that's so boring that was my least favorite class in high school (laughs) well shoot shoot so when people are having a controversy there's a it's not a yawning moment it's not a moment of people seeming fatigued and bored people have to have to pay attention so each of these place names is its own great opportunity for uh, enlivened conversation i think and before we go ernest you're part of the movement to recognize the sand creek massacre and to get a sand creek memorial installed at the colorado state capitol it's been commissioned tell me about where we are in that process and why it's not there yet Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I think it's very relatable to the conversation we're having today. Back in 2014, obviously, when Governor Hickenlooper issued the apology, yet another momentum, you know, the recognition for Sand Creek Massacre and descendants of the Sand Creek Descendant Committee made up the Cheyenne Arapaho tribes. You know, it's been an ongoing effort since the 90s. And I remember standing on the west steps of the Capitol. It's normally during, you know, it's November 29th, so it's during the Thanksgiving break. A lot of people in downtown Denver are just not around. Some days it's snowing, some days it's sunny. And over the years, seeing the crowd just grow more and more and more and seeing the awareness. And in 2014, when the apology was issued, then 2015, the state transferred state-owned land adjacent to the National Park site in Eads, Colorado, the National, the Sand Creek National, the Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site. Um, and then in and then really at that, that end of the year, and then moving to 2016, the efforts to where fundraising were launched to, to bring the memorial. Now, where that stands is ultimately with the tribes. The tribes are deciding where that location should be. I think this is yet another opportunity to revive that conversation, to support that those efforts uh, around bringing true history and acknowledgement of Yes, a dark chapter in Colorado's history, but use it to get better. I'm a big believer in, you know, the learning from the past and remembering it. And uh, I know I'm, I'm, I agree with with Patty and and using that history to drive what our actions are moving forward. And I think here's just yet another opportunity to build that strong relationship between the state of Colorado and the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. And this calls to mind what you were saying about place names, that it is a tribe's decision if and when to share those. It's not the state of Colorado's to speak for tribes, and in the same way it's not the state of Colorado's to speak for the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. This is up to them as well. Absolutely. And I think that over the years, again, we've tried to strengthen the government to government relationship. A lot of people don't look at the relationship. They Clearly, this is the federal tribal relationship. But the state tribal relationship is also important, as we're seeing in other states like Oklahoma, where that that relationship is is being stressed and, and fractured. Uh, we're looking at ways in Colorado to, at least I hope we are, to move that conversation forward. You know, when the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs was created in 1976, it was out of protest. It was out of protest because the state of Colorado was not addressing or respectfully working with the tribes to address Native American human remains that were found in Colorado and stored by the state. That movement led into a huge process with Colorado being the first state to initiate this protocol. Um, first in the country, well, we should be moving forward with those type of efforts. And I think this type of board is hopefully yet another opportunity to do that. Well, Ernest and Patty, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
Ernest House Jr. is the former executive director of the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs. He's now the Keystone Policy Cen- He's now with the Keystone Policy Center. Patty Limerick is chair for the Center of the American West and an appointee on Governor Polis's Geographic Naming Advisory Board. I'm Jenny Brendine, education reporter at CPR News. Parents and students have so many questions about returning to school this season. School districts struggle with how to bring kids back to the classroom safely. Big city school districts and rural schools have different challenges, and the experience from family to family can be stark. CPR News is working on the stories that can connect you with how this school season impacts your family. Stay informed. Trust the facts. Trust CPR News. In 1964, Colorado native Palibaca was a young political volunteer, watching from a guest balcony at the Democratic National Convention as Lyndon Johnson was nominated for president. Fast forward 56 years, this week Baca is attending her 15th consecutive convention. On Tuesday, she helped present the Colorado delegation's vote for the presidential nomination. Of course, the convention is remote this year, and Baca's Zoom background brings history to the screen. It's a black-and-white photograph from 1968. She worked for Robert Kennedy that spring. After his assassination, she went to the convention and tried to get his brother, Ted, nominated for president. And this picture really reflects the convention. Someone in California had given me their badge. So I snuck onto the—I took that badge and went onto the convention floor. So I was standing on a chair— rallying for for Ted Kennedy. And so, but you will notice as you look at this picture that there are very few women. Well, there aren't any women that you can see. And I see one African-American, and I think he was from uh, Washington, D.C., and I'm not sure. Very few minorities at that convention. Later, Baca helped organize the party's first Hispanic caucus. She also wrote a party rule that required convention delegations to be evenly split as much as possible between men and women. Now, I think men are going to be glad that we have equal division because we have more women active in the party. Baca's home base for all those years was Colorado. She spent 12 years in the legislature and was the first Hispanic woman in the state Senate. Every four years, she attended the national convention, often with party leadership roles. Smoke-filled rooms, she said, weren't a figure of speech. In the 1980s, she sometimes took her son with her. At one convention, he got a cigarette burn in his clothes because there were so many, you know, cigarettes around in the, at the parties and stuff like that. But today, it is definitely a different convention, but it's an historic one. And this convention represents a change I believe, in the way that we will hold conventions. She says she's found during the pandemic that doing the routine business of the convention by computer is great because more people can get involved. But she wouldn't want the convention to remain entirely remote. I will always want to go and be there in the flesh, meet my friends from around the country and and go to the parties. You know, the parties are always fun. Tonight, Joe Biden will accept his party's nomination for president. It all became official earlier this week when someone from each state appeared on camera to announce their delegation's vote. In Colorado, a party official named Howard Cho made the announcement at Red Rocks. He was surrounded by family, and behind him, in a mask, was Polly Baca. And I was so honored to be asked to be a part of the casting of our vote. I think I represented both Latinos and the elderly. (laughs) Finally today, 
The spotlight is on Liot and the Sirens. The new Denver-based band is a local 303 musician for August, chosen by our colleagues at Indy 1023. Their debut single was written and released during COVID-19 isolation, but it emphasizes themes of connection and oneness. Denver group Liat and the Sirens performing Meet the Sea. Indy1023 chose them as a local 303 artist this month. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is God's country.